I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning or some fashion of the scriptures. If you have those with you, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This morning we are continuing to uh, look at the, the, the subject of the resurrection, uh, particularly our resurrection. So we will pick up where we left off last week. But this morning we are going to read um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 57. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, Then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. As we pray this morning and as we're talking about the resurrection of those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, I want to let you know to pray for the Laycock family. Jerry Laycock's mother uh, tragically passed away this past week, and so it was quite unexpected. They were just getting ready to move her to Coeur d'Alene to, to live near them. So would you pray for the Laycock family? And if you see any of the Laycock fan, uh, clan this morning, uh, give them your condolences. Pray with me, please. Lord, we come to your word with uh, humility and reverence. We come with humility knowing that we are still in these dishonorable bodies, perishable bodies, weak bodies, natural bodies. And we look forward to the day where you will change us and those who have fallen asleep in Jesus We ask that this morning you would not only inform us from your word, but that you would inspire us by its truth. We pray that we would understand it. We pray that we would live it. And we're grateful for giving to us what it means now uh, in your word, that it makes a difference in our lives. And so we turn to you, looking into your face, looking into eternity, Praying, Lord, that we would be transformed even now into the image of Christ and the likeness of what we will one day be. We pray, Father, for the Laycock family as uh, they are experiencing the sting of death this week. We thank you, Father, that that sting is done away with, with the resurrection of Christ. Bring comfort and consolation to this family now. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Good to see you all this morning. Everybody seems kind of subdued. Are you awake? Yes. Okay, there we go. (laughs) Um, 
It's Fourth of July weekend. I know we have some people camping and stuff. Uh, These kinds of patriotic holidays, Fourth of July, Memorial Day, Veterans Day, remind me as a veteran of my, my service um, in the Navy, many of you know I spent a couple of decades as a as a Navy chaplain, and uh, about two thirds of that time I was a reservist. And in my my time in the reserves, I traveled all the time, all over the nation. And at least once a month, I was on an airplane going somewhere. And my fear at that time was always to get somewhere and to have the wrong uniform or to have pieces of my uniform missing. When you see service members out in town today, uh, Air Force or Army and even some some extent the Navy, uh, you will not see Marines out in in town in a uniform unless it's a service uniform. But most uniforms you see out in town, people are dressed in what is called a utility uniform. It usually has the kind of camouflage. You've seen them out in the gas stations and in the grocery stores and wherever. And they're easy to wear because you put on your boots, you put on the uniform, it's got your name stitched in, it's got your rank on there, everything is just ready to wear. I always had to wear a service uniform, which means I had to have the right shoes, I had to have the right socks, I had to have the right pants, I had to have the right shirt, I had to have the right belt, I had to have the right hat, and on the hat, had on one side was a navy crest, on the other side was my rank. On my shirt, I had to have a name tag, I had to have a collar device for my cross on one side, a collar device for my rank on the other, I had to have a name tag, and I had to have my ribbons, and they all had to be in order. And so... When I was traveling somewhere, I was always frantic, thinking, do I have everything? And Tara would always quiz me before I went to the airport. Do you have your hat? Do you have your shoes? Do you have your ribbons? Do you have this? Do you have that? And my fear was always getting somewhere and being out of uniform, improperly dressed, because in all branches of the service, there is a prescribed uniform for a prescribed duty, and I wanted to be clothed properly. Similarly, we are to be clothed for eternity. We are to put on a proper uniform, as it were. We are to be clothed for the proper day. The clothing that we wear is not an outward uniform. It's not a shirt. It's not pants. It's not some kind of a hat. Um, our, Our spirits will be clothed with a new body. That's what we have to look forward to. Paul is using the language here of being clothed for eternity. We're going to start with this. We will end with this. But what he is saying is you cannot enter and you're not able unless you have a change of clothes, as it were. There must be a change of clothes before we enter. For believers uh, to enter eternity with Christ, something has to change. And so the first thing we're going to see in verses 50 through 53 is this. Our entrance to eternity requires a fundamental change. For us to enter eternity, it requires that there is this fundamental change that we undergo. We've already underwent a change of of, uh, status in terms of our forgiveness of sins. And... uh, But we must undergo a fundamental change before we enter eternity. He says in verse 50, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot enter, excuse me, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The point is this. We cannot enter eternity 
in our present earthly bodies. You cannot go to heaven, we cannot go into eternity in our present earthly bodies, whether it's our body right now or a body that's in a grave. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there has to be a a transformation. We already know Paul has used similar language back in chapter 6 where he said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. And so we have been, we have already undergone one kind of change. We have been born again. The Spirit of God has washed us of our sins by the blood of Christ. We are now new creations in Christ, but it's not enough. There has to be a fundamental change in our bodies. Flesh and blood cannot enter eternity. When he says kingdom of God here, Paul is talking about the final eternal state. He's not talking about the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. And we saw that earlier in the, in the chapter where he said uh, uh, one day Christ is going to abolish death and he will give to the Father the kingdom. And he's talking about the, the ultimate state of eternity. <coughs> Pardon me. And so far, like we saw last week, Paul is using these analogies. He talked about the seed becoming a body. He talked about various kinds of flesh, human, animals, birds, and fish. He talked about heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. And he talked about the fact that we are just but dust, like Adam, perishable, subject to decay, corruption. And he said last week, we, like we saw in the previous passage, our bodies are now and then sown, in, per, sown perishable, raised imperishable, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual, supernatural body. This is what we are now. And now he gets down to brass tacks. He's not talking in... Uh, in metaphor or analogies any longer, he says it right out. Flesh and blood cannot enter eternity. Something has to change. We were dust, but we must be, we were remade in the heavenly likeness of Christ, but it hasn't happened yes, yet. So we cannot enter eternity in our present state and our earthly bodies. So what's the answer? He says, let me tell you a little secret in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery, something you haven't known before. We will not all sleep, but we will all all be changed. Paul says, I've got uh, something to tell you that you don't understand. He's already written to the Thessalonians, uh, a previous book, and he has told them this. Perhaps he has not uh, told the Corinthians At any point, this is a mystery that was not known before. And this is the mystery. God's work of change is both mysterious and miraculous. And obviously it is. It is mysterious and and it is miraculous for us to be raised from the dead. And he says, first of all, not all Christians will die. He said, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. And he's already 
in, in, our, in, our, in the context of 1 Corinthians 15, sleeping is talking about those who have died in Jesus, fallen asleep in Jesus. And he's been talking about those who die in Christ. He's been talking about the resurrection of the dead because Christ has raised from the dead. But then he raises now a new question. What about when Christ returns? We're not all, not all dead. Some of us are still alive. What happens then? And he tells them this mystery. We're not all going to die. And by the way, this tells us that Paul believed in the imminent return of Christ. Because he includes himself in this, we will not all die. And perhaps Paul was thinking Christ could come back at any time, and that's what we believe as well, the imminent return of Christ. We will not all fall asleep in Jesus. Not every Christian is going to die. We think it's a foregone conclusion that we're going to be born, live our lives, and one day we will die, and most likely that is the case. But it is possible that Christ would return for us, in which case we will not die. So not all Christians will die, but all Christians will be changed. For he says, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. That curse reminded me this week that that's a... Uh, you've probably seen this uh, as a little sign on church nurseries all the time. Uh, not all will sleep, but all will be changed, right? <laughs> you've ever seen that? But this is a miraculous and mysterious work of God that someday those who are alive at the coming of Christ will be changed. But all will be changed, but not all will be changed because flesh, all will be changed rather why? Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking here about the rapture. The Lord's return for his church in the rapture. He wrote previously to the church in Thessalonica in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, and I'll put it up on the screen and read it to you so you can see the, the parallel to 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. He's writing this hope of the resurrection and the return of Christ for those recognizing that we have grief in this earth, but as Christians, when, when grandma dies, when your wife dies, when your child dies, when your spouse dies, and they are believers in Christ, we have hope beyond the grave. And our grief is not one of despair. What am I going to do? Life is over. No, life is not over for them, nor is it over for you. And the world grieves as if there is, they, there is no hope, because for them there is no hope. And then he gives the gospel in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. This is 1 Corinthians 15 in shorthand right there. Here's the gospel. Christ died and rose again, and he's coming for you, and you will be raised too. But then he says this. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, same thing that Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And here's what happens. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And here is the rapture. 
then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. That is our hope. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Just about every funeral that I've ever done and done a graveside committal or a memorial committal, this is the passage that I read because this is the hope of the resurrection. This is the hope of the believer who dies in Christ. This is the hope for those who grieve those who have died, their loved ones, their spouse, their children, grandma, grandpa, whomever it may be, friends. And we are to comfort one another with these words that they will be raised and we will be changed. If we are, we are still alive at his coming, we will be raptured. The word rapture does not appear here because it's not really a, a biblical word per se. But the word rapture comes from the Latin word rapturo, rapturo. And so the Latin translation of the Greek text here in First Thessalonians is the word rapturo. But this word means to snatch away, to suddenly remove something. And, and many people scoff at the idea of the resurrection. Even today, a lot of Christians, oh, that's such a silly idea because left behind in the movies and the books, and it's just some dorky thing that some Christian came up with. Oh, really? He says, I tell you this by the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Not only that, we see the idea of a, of, a, of a taking away and a rapturing throughout the scriptures. And people who, who question this are, are, are in the same category of the Corinthians when, G, when Paul said, you're acting as if you're agnostics. You're a fool if you don't believe the mystery of the resurrection because if God, is, God exists, then miracles are possible. He raised Christ and he will raise us as well. But we see this idea of the snatching away many times. We see, remember the story in Acts where Philip was near Gaza and the spirit just transported him and caught him up and took him to Caesarea. Remember that in Acts chapter 8? And then Paul's experience of being caught up to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In addition to that, of course, there's the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in our passage today in 1 Corinthians 15. But we see throughout the scriptures this very concept, for instance, Enoch in Genesis 5.24, which says, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Hebrews 11 in the hall, this Hallmark of the, the faith says, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. The story of Elijah in 2, Corinthians, 2 Kings chapter 2. As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire with horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Do you believe that happened? Why is it so hard to believe in the resurrection of God's children? The two witnesses in the tribulation, Revelation 11. 
But after the three and a half days, these are the witnesses that have come during the tribulation and they're put to death and they're laying out in the, in the square for days, uh, two and a half days. But the breath from, of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up into heaven into the cloud and their enemies watched them. Do you believe that will happen? Of course. And then there's the ascension of Jesus himself, a type of rapture, if you will. In Acts chapter 1, after he gave them the, the great commission, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. After he said these things, um, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood behind them, beside them, rather, angels. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go up to heaven. He went up to heaven. He's coming back in 1 Thessalonians 4. It tells us that when he does, just as he was caught up, we will be caught up. Why is that so hard to believe? It makes perfect sense. But the manner of this change is instantaneous. In verse 52, it says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. The manner of our change is going to be instantaneous. He says it will be in a moment. The word moment here, I'll just tell you what it is because it's a, it's a word that transliterates easy for us to understand. It's the word atomos. We get the word atom from it. Paul and people in those days would not have known what an atom was, okay? So we don't need to go into that. They didn't have microscopes. But for them, atomos, an atom, was the shortest amount of time you could conceive of. But then he gives it metaphorically in the twinkling of an eye, the blink of an eye. When you're standing and talking to someone and, and they blink, you don't even notice it unless there's something wrong with them and they're just you know, blinking a lot. And then you go, are you okay? Or uh, you know, is something wrong with your eyes? But when we're, we're just standing and talking to someone, we do not really un, uh, recognize or notice the fact that they're blinking because a blink is anywhere from uh, 100 to 400 milliseconds. That's how long a blink lasts. He's saying it is instantaneous. It happens in a flash. We are changed in a moment. The, the smallest uh, measurement of moment, that is when our change will take place. And the time of our change is when Christ returns. Because he says, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed at the last trumpet. In the Old Testament, the trumpet was, or the shofar was sound, <coughs> excuse me, sounded at the beginning of the feast. There was a trumpet sound at Mount Sinai when God was giving the law, and which, uh, which was the mountain was covered with doom and gloom and, and, and earthquakes and clouds uh, demonstrating uh, judgment language. And so the, the shofar, the trumpet, was, was sounded as uh, 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 
the, the fact that something very, very important is going to happen. By the way, Martin Luther's uh, 1534 translation of the Bible in German <clears throat> into English says this, We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trombone, for the trombone shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. Trombone players out there? I am one. Any others? The last trombone. Obviously, it was just a word for horn, but this was the, the German word for trombone. So when you hear that sweet melody of the jazz trombone, that's the time to put on your dancing shoes and get out of that grave and put on your festal robes, right? At the last trombone. The point is, when Christ comes back at trumpet sound, may we in him be found. We're going to sing that at the end. That is what we are looking forward to. And the reason for our change is that we must be clothed for eternity. Verse 53, for this perishable, this that does not last, this body that decays, this body that is corrupting, must put on the imperishable, the incorruptible, and the mortal must put on the immortality. Our bodies, this is mortal flesh given to death. But we put on a type of flesh that is not given to death. It is eternal. It is powerful. It is glorious. It is imperishable. It is our eternal bodies. And the reason that that change, again, must take place is that we must be clothed for eternity. He says this perishable must put it on. It is a necessity. Why is it a necessity? Because flesh and blood cannot enter eternity. It's not a matter of filling out the right paperwork and getting to, you know, the, the whole cartoon. You come up to uh, the heaven's gate and there's St. Peter and he's looking at all the paperwork. No, that's not a matter of what happens. And it's not a matter of restarting the heart. It's not a matter of giving life to lungs in a, in a, in a body in a coffin. It's not a, a matter of restoring brain waves of someone who has died. That's a resuscitation. This is a resurrection. And that's the point that Paul was making to the Corinthians. They were saying, oh, a resurrection from the dead? How can a dead body be, be, you know, come to life again? He's saying, no, it has to be changed. Because flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God. The human body is unfit for eternity because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Therefore, this flesh and blood, this perishable body, this mortal body must be changed. This is a transformation from what we are now to what we will be then and obviously, only God can do that. Salvation is of the Lord. We are saved by grace through faith. By the way, when Paul says, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and the mortal must put on the immortal, this is a favorite word of the Apostle Paul, put on. It means to clothe yourself. To clothe yourself. 
He uses it many, many times, and it's a me- metaphorically of, of putting on characteristics, metaphorically of putting on virtues, of putting on behaviors, of putting on your identity. As we will end this morning, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourself with him. That is who you are. That is your identity, the identity of Jesus Christ. That's something we're to do now, but one day, this is the act of God. Only God can change us, and only God can clothe us with imperishable flesh, with immortal bodies. Only he can do that. Our spirits will be clothed with a body that will last forever. And I think that's important to remember through this whole thing. I'm not sure if we've said that, but oftentimes... People have this idea, well, when you die, you go to heaven, but, you know, your body stays in the ground. And even in heaven, you're this spirit like an angel that's wispy. No, your body is redeemed. The very body that you're in has been redeemed. It's not going to be fit for heaven, so he's going to make it better. He's going to change it. Because that is part of your salvation, not just your spirit, but your body as well is redeemed. So the second thing we see in this passage is that our entrance to eternity signals the defeat of death. It signals the defeat of death. When we are changed, death is destroyed. When we are changed, that is the time that death is finally defeated. He says in, verses, in verse 54 and 55, But when this perishable will put on the imperishable, and when this mortal will have put on the immortality, looking to the future, then will come about the saying that is written, then will come about this fulfillment, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? In Isaiah 25, which is being quoted here, says this, of the end times of the Lord, he will swallow up death for all time. The Lord will consume death. He will abolish it. He will swallow it up for all time. He obliterates death. He consumes it and annihilates it. And it goes on to say, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from their faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited. We're waiting right now. That he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Because one day he will come and swallow up death for all time. But the other part of this is a quote of Hosea. And Hosea is speaking judgment to the tribe of Ephraim. He says, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol, that is the grave? Shall I redeem them from death? And then he says, O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. He's declaring that that there's going to be judgment on them because they have disobeyed. But Paul uses it with irony because this looks like a defeat. And there were these apparent victories of Satan in the garden when he he caused Adam and Eve to fall. 
the crucifixion, he probably laughed at Jesus being crucified on the cross and being put into a, 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 a grave. But the cross and the res- resurrection, they turn the tables around. And so, so this irony becomes a taunt. When he's saying, okay, death, where's your victory now? Trash-talking death. Okay, where's the sting? We, whatever, death. We don't care. That's what Paul is doing here. Because of the resurrection of Christ, and when we are raised or when we are changed in a moment, in that day, death is defeated once and for all. This is when the last enemy is abolished, as he said earlier in verse 24. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Swallowed up. We taunt it. Can't hurt us. We're not afraid of you because of Christ. Then we see he returns to the gospel in verse 56. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Death and its pain come through sin. Not only is death defeated, but also the two companions that come with death, sin and the law. Death and its pain come through sin. The sting of death is sin. Present tense. We experience it now. The Laycocks experienced it this week. But the gospel is the only remedy for sin. And the resurrection is the only remedy for death. You take care of sin and you take care of death. You take care of sin and death. You take care of the sting. This last week, I, uh, I was stung by a wasp in my, out of my, uh, my shed. I was doing some stuff, and a wasp stung me right there. And it stung for a couple of days. Ouch! But it went away. But when you have that stinger of death in your heart because your loved one died, that doesn't just go away in a couple of days. That stinger stays in your heart for a very long, long time when you experience the grief, the sting of death of a loved one. But we do not have to grieve as those who have no hope. Death is painful. We recognize that. And we also recognize that sin's power comes through breaking God's law. That's where sin's power comes. In the Old Testament law of Moses, and, and Paul would be alluding to this, but we, we have to understand that uh, sin came before the law just as grace came before the law. In Romans 7, Paul said this, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart, apart from the law, sin is dead. In other words, when God gave the law to Israel, and he named all these different kinds of sins, people go, oh yeah, that, that's a sin. Huh? Oh, I see that, that's a sin. Oy vey. You know, they could recognize all the things that were part of God's command. But even before the law that was given to Moses at Sinai, there is the law of conscience. 
Paul spoke of that in Romans 2, where he said, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. Every person on this earth, believer, unbeliever, atheist, agnostic, whatever they are, they know. They know in their heart. God has placed in their heart a knowledge of right and wrong. They know it's wrong to cheat. They know it's wrong to steal. They know it's wrong to kill people. They know it's wrong to lie. And when they do it, their conscience tells them so. In time, yes, their heart is hardened. But they will one day be without excuse because God will say, no, you knew. You knew. But even before that, even in the garden, Genesis 2.16, the Lord God commanded the man. He laid down the law to Adam. From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, it, you will surely die. He most surely ate, and he most surely died. Because by one man sin entered the world, and in Christ all will be made alive. The last thing we see in our passage this morning is a doxology, a giving of thanks. Verse 57 where we see entrance to eternity inspires our gratitude. Our entrance to eternity that we're looking forward to, it it inspires us, it it engenders thanksgiving in our hearts, it it stimulates us to give thanks to God, and that's exactly what happens with Paul, talking about all of these things, and then he just bursts bursts forth with this, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a doxology. This is a praise, a thanksgiving to God. Yes, sin and death are still painful and present, but thanks be to God because of what he's given to us. It is fitting to give thanks to God. We owe him a debt of gratitude. We praise him for our victory over sin because he gives us victory over sin and death now. In the present tense. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. It's ours. It's yours right now. And our victory now and then is only through Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory now through our Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks. He gives us the victory. And that victory is only through Christ alone. So, Clothed for eternity, as we bring this to a close. What do we do with this now? Yes, we have hope. We don't need to fear death. Um, all of the New Testament prophetic scriptures always have some kind of an, what, what, what uh, theologians call an ethical imperative. In other words, you are supposed to live this way in light of the future. What sort of people are we supposed to be? 
Or the way John put it, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. We have comfort, but we're supposed to live now. Next week, we're going to look at verse 58, which kind of brings all of the the, the practical ramifications of the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection into one. But for, for, for this morning, I want you to do this. Consider life a dress rehearsal for your entrance into eternity. You must be clothed with a heavenly body to enter eternity. But for now, consider the life that you live as a dress rehearsal. Remember, Paul uses this word, we must put on, we must be clothed this way, and he uses this, past, uh, this, this kind of language throughout the scriptures. So first and foremost, clothe yourself with Christ-likeness. Put on Christ-likeness. Colossians 3, 12-13, So as those who have been chosen of God, have you been chosen of God? Are you holy and beloved? Put on, clothe yourselves with a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Clothe yourself with compassion. Clothe yourself with humility. Clothe yourself with kindness, with patience, with forgiveness. Second of all, clothe yourself with love. Colossians 3.14, where Paul says, beyond all of these things, put on love. Clothe yourself with love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Third, and I think this is very practical, clothe yourself with the armor of God. Same word is used in, in Ephesians 6.11, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, so put on the armor of God. Clothe yourselves with all that God provides for you for the spiritual battle in which you find yourself. And fourth, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on him. Put on your identity. Put on the likeness of Christ. Clothe yourself in him, his righteousness alone. His thoughts, you have the mind of Christ, you have the heart of Christ, you have the righteousness of Christ, Romans 13, 14. But clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Adopt an eternal perspective, brethren. Think in terms of of what is ahead, the brevity of life, the vanity of this world but also the reality of heaven as you put on Christ. Thank you, Father, for your word, for it is wholly true and wholly adequate for us to live lives in dependence upon you that bring glory to you. We look forward to the return of Christ. We pray that it would be this afternoon, for we long to be clothed with clothing from on high. We long to be set free from this earth But, Lord, we know that that choosing is yours. In the meantime, may we live as heavenly citizens. In the name of Christ, amen.